Kendi güzel mekan Şöhretlerince Kayıldır cavan It is a word that no one should advocate for or defend. But time and time again, the truth has been shamed into silence for questioning Western narratives that prop up grotesque studies, false witnesses. They took the babies out of the incubators and left the children to die on the cold floor. And even fake catastrophes to usher us into war. We on the left know that the sophistication of Western government's lies and fallacies go Deep. I'm an attorney, and it's my job to look at all the facts, as complicated as they may be, to break down the truth to all of you, the people. And after reviewing all of these claims, we may be looking at the most sophisticated campaign to smear a country since the Iraq War. This will probably be my longest video because it is the most important. I'm going to try my best not to trigger any of YouTube's policies regarding this subject, and I'm not going to monetize this video either. But if you'd like to support us, please consider subscribing and sharing this video all over. Also consider becoming a patron as well, as it makes videos like these possible. Thank you to all our patrons for making this investigation and research on this subject possible. <sighs> the claim China is committing genocide is not only an outright lie, but the allegation that there is even any maltreatment to the Uyghur population is nothing short of projection from the West's own crimes against Black, Latin, Asian, and Indigenous communities in their countries. This projection is having drastic real-world effects. Canada unanimously passed a resolution calling China's treatment of Uyghurs a genocide. The United States has passed the Uyghur Human Rights Policy Act, and the West is imposing trade sanctions with companies and the entire region of Xinjiang. And other, quote, human rights campaigns are recirculating this BS every single day. Moreover, Western outlets and social media all over are calling out for all-out war, along with pushing other xenophobic narratives. Amidst all the blustering state rhetoric, public views of the People's Republic are hitting historic lows. Unfavorable views of China have skyrocketed in the U.S., more than doubling from 35 to 73 percent between 2005 and 2020. An allegation like genocide ought to be well established, with consistent undeniable facts. Even though I already did a video debunking most of these claims in response to John Oliver's segments on this, this necessitates a longer, more thorough video. I may be going over the same stuff again and even splicing some of those clips into this video, but it's all in the nature to be more inclusive and thorough. I also want to give a heads up that I will attempt to use as many primary resources as possible, and I will link the sources in the descriptions below. There will be usage of other seeming biased sources like CGTN, but I only use those that reference primary unedited sources as well. I will talk a bit about how these sources are extremely different from the West's circular media sources. Today, this American is going to debunk the Uyghur genocide.
China is a unified multi-ethnic country, and the various ethnicities in Xinjiang have long been a part of the Chinese country since the Han Dynasty from 206 BC to 220 AD, all the way through the Middle and Late Qing Dynasty from 1644 to 1911. In the vast areas both north and south of the Tianjin Mountains, Xinjiang was formally included in Chinese territory during the Han Dynasty. Throughout this time, all these dynasties regarded Xinjiang as part of Chinese territory and exercised their jurisdiction over the area. The Uyghur people themselves were mainly made up of the Ngor people who lived on the Mongolian Plateau during the Su and Tang dynasties, along with a bit of Turkish nomads in the 6th century that integrated into the surrounding tribes in the area. Never in Chinese history has Xinjiang been acknowledged as East Turkestan, and there has never been an independent state recognized by China or the international community as East Turkestan, despite different groups attempting to control it. Friends of the show Isha K from Historically and Carl Za, host for the Silk and Steel podcast, dove into this period during the Qi Dynasty up to the revolution. Historical perspective. Um, so after 1911, after the, the Qin Dynasty, the last imperial dynasty in China was overthrown in Chinese Revolution, China kind of various pieces of Qing empire kind of broke apart and various parts of China were ruled by warlords and Xinjiang was no exception. A group of warlords ruled Xinjiang and there were civil wars and bloody rebellions until 1930s uh, when Soviet Union decided to uh, prop up one Chinese warlord, Sun Cicai, against the other rebels. And it's uh, around this time that there was uh, the first so-called uh, uh, establishment of the first so-called East Turkestan Republic. And the East Turkestan Republic was established for less than six months because at the time Xinjiang was involved in civil war. And then the East Turkestan Republic ceased to exist because uh, at the time another Chinese Muslim warlord army came from a different part of China, went in Xinjiang and took and basically wiped out this, uh, this, this uh, so-called East Turkestan Republic. So around after the World War II ended, in 1946, Soviet Union then supported another group of uh, Uyghur uh, nationalists from Soviet Central Asia. They launched a, a successful rebellion called, um, so some, sometimes called the Yili Rebellion, because it's based out of the northern Xinjiang in the in the Yili area on the on the border with Kazakhstan. And they quickly took over three districts in northern Xinjiang, and they were on the way to push into the provincial capital. When this time, during, at the end of the World War II, there was a lot of, because the Cold War is beginning, and there was a lot of negotiation back and forth. Stalin was trying to, you know, wean China off from the support of the United States. So a deal was made with Chiang Kai-shek that in return for Chiang Kai-shek's recognizing outer Mongolia to be independent state, and also recognizing special Soviet privilege in Manchuria, that Soviet Union will respect China's territorial integrity, so including Xinjiang. So at that time, the Yili Rebellion in northern Xinjiang resulted briefly in what's so-called the Second East Turkestan Republic uh, in the three northern districts of Xinjiang. But, but because of the negotiation between the Soviet government and Chiang Kai-shek's government, the three districts in northern Xinjiang, they gave up the title of East Turkestan Republic and entered into a peace negotiation with the KMT, KMT government in uh, Xinjiang provincial capital, Urumqi. So result, 
who is supposedly the goal to form a coalition government. In 1949, the People's Republic of China, or the PRC, was founded, and Xinjiang was liberated peacefully from the Nationalist Army under Chiang Kai-shek and negotiated the region's incorporation into the country with the support of the Soviet Union. In 1955, the Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region was established. Under the leadership of the Communist Party of China, all ethnic groups in Xinjiang united and worked with other groups across the country, opening a period of unprecedented prosperity for the region. Currently, Xinjiang is 60% Uyghur, with multiple ethnicities and religions, including Islam, Buddhism, Taoism, Protestantism, Catholicism, and the Eastern Orthodox Church. It has over 24,000 venues for religious activity, including mosques, churches, Buddhist and Taoist temples, with over 29,000 religious staff. However, there has been an Islamic separatist movement happening, lots of aid coming from terrorist groups and even possibly coming from the CIA. More on this later. I spoke a bit on how these attacks were happening since the 1990s and killed several hundred innocent people, and China found effective means of stopping civilians from radicalizing along with not having a terrorist attack since 2017. The Eastern Turkish Islamic movement was responsible for many of these attacks in Xinjiang. Separatist forces politicized this term to create an independent state, the so-called East Turkestan, to split it from China. Since its establishment, the ETIM has maintained close ties with international terrorist organizations like Al-Qaeda. But just last year, the ETIM were taken off the U.S. terrorist list despite having a number of links to terrorist organizations like Al-Qaeda in Afghanistan and their most recent attacks through a suicide bomber in Kyrgyzstan from 2016. Interesting coincidence, right? But instead of dropping bombs into sovereign territories, China upped their security and built vocational programs to reduce extremism, something that France, Malaysia, and Indonesia have done as well, and is a very important context when understanding the situation. With this said, let's get into understanding the legalities of genocide. When we assert a crime against humanity like genocide towards a state or an actor, the international community has certain standards for it. Genocide was first recognized as a crime under international law in 1946 by the United Nations General Assembly and was codified as an independent crime in the 1948 Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide. Now I know that there are some that do not agree about these definitions and how these are politicized to the point of being toothless. However, we must deal with this law as it is the legal definitions that countries use in our world currently. Additionally, I want you all to notice how eerie the media has made this definition into a checklist of what to cover with China and the Uyghur situation to quote prove genocide. More on that later. Article 2 of the convention provides a definition for genocide. Stating, in the present convention, genocide means any of the following acts committed with the intent to destroy, in whole or in part, a national, ethnical, racial, or religious group as such. 1. Killing members of the group. 2. Causing serious bodily or mental harm to the members of the group. 3. Deliberately inflicting on the group conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical construction in whole or in part. 4. Imposing measures intended to prevent birds within the group. And 5. Forcibly transferring children of the group to another group. 
There are two elements of genocide under the convention as a sort of mens rea or actus reus. A mental element of genocide is the intent to destroy in whole or in part a national, ethnical, racial, or religious group as such, and a physical element, which includes the five following acts I listed above. Intent is the most difficult to prove, as this requires special intent of perpetuators to physically destroy a national, ethnical, racial, or religious group. Cultural destruction does not suffice, nor does an intention to simply disperse a group. Given this, despite the mountains of propaganda that the West has, the USA State Department attorneys, World Bank observers and the International Criminal Court do not have enough evidence to pursue any charge for genocide against China, despite the political and legislative bodies calling for otherwise. Now, I find it fascinating that the Western media has attempted to focus on these five elements at the same time, rather than focusing on one over the other. For comparison, in Rwanda, the focus was obviously the massacres and killings that were happening during that time. But rarely, if at all, did we hear the militias in the country impose measures to prevent burrs or forcibly transferring children from one group to another. The Rwanda genocide obviously met the first criteria and the intent of these militias under their leaders. However, with China, the media focuses on concentration camps, mass sterilizations, forced marriages to Han Chinese, and children being separated. Each element is perfectively focused and tailored by the media like a checklist, almost like they're deliberately attempting to make sure these stories fit the UN definition of genocide. This is not just some random reporting. They are building a case to prove each element of genocide through phony propaganda. Luckily, China knows this as well. Now, let's get into the evidence. I am going head first into the West's strongest evidence for genocide and reveal them to be paper tigers. They're quote, independent researchers, and witnesses. Let's start off with their so-called experts, with their biggest being, oh boy, Adrian Zenz. Just as a preface, I would love to ask where the world would be without Adrian Zenz. Now in my first video, I got into great detail on his obvious bias. Being a senior fellow from the victims of communism, far-right fundamentalism, believing that he was sent by God to destroy China, and oh, so much more. My question, if you are the author of that book, is that um, you, in that book, call for spiritual spanking of children. You refer to gender equality as a satanic campaign. Um, you speak out against hate crime legislation, and you speak out against tolerance thinking, uh, blaming it on the leopard-like power behind the Antichrist. I was wondering how those views influence uh, your work on China, a country that officially restricts apocalypticist evangelical religions like those expressed in that book. This article from Grey Zone actually did a fantastic job citing his own works and showing what kind of person he really is. But what's worse than his own personal background, beliefs, and clear biases 
is his incredibly faulty studies. As this Grey Zone article that exposes all of this, stating, quote, a careful review of Zen's research shows that his assertion of genocide is contradicted by flagrant data abuse, fraudulent claims, cherry-picking of source material, and propagandistic misrepresentations. We have to remember that Adrian Zen's studies come from right-wing conservative think tanks that have no peer-review standards by accredited academics. Well, it's remarkable that this incendiary and very consequential claim of genocide is based on research that is not carried out in an academic setting, not published in an academic journal, not authored by someone who has ever been to the region he claims expertise in, and who is not even a China scholar with any record of China scholarship, and it's unclear if they even speak Chinese. Does Western media care to fact check any of these studies? Check with actual academics or experts? Or question his awful methodology? Absolutely not. Articles by the Associated Press, CNN, and BBC all relied on Zen's studies to claim, for example, plunging Uyghur birth rates and the application of birth control measures in Xinjiang were proof of the policy's, quote, demographic genocide, along with this study supporting the million Uyghur prisoner lie. Remember what I said about that one? They got this million prisoner number from eight interviewees. Yes, these researchers only interviewed eight interviewees and estimated based on these interviews of a region of 11 million, over a million have been imprisoned. They literally multiplied and rounded up numbers from eight interviewees and applied them to the number of villages, similar circumstances, to calculate one million prisoners. Focusing now on Adrian Zen's 2020 paper for the Jamestown Foundation, another right-wing conservative think tank filled with military and intelligence officers, he boasted that his foundings, quote, provide the strongest evidence yet that Beijing's policies in Xinjiang met one of the genocide criteria cited in the UN Convention. As we recall, they are trying to point out to subsection D regarding, quote, imposing measures intended to prevent burrs within the group. Adrian Zen's crux of his study purposefully cites China's own governmental statistics incorrectly to bolster the idea that there was a malicious and intentional sterilization of women. Zen's argued that population control measures applied to Uyghurs could be branded as genocidal because population growth rates fell by 84% between 2015 and 2018. But there's more complete statistics that Zen cited in his study and the data he conveniently omitted that completely contradicts this conclusion. Zen's provided statistics revealing that between 2005 and 2015, the Uyghur population growth in Xinjiang was 2.6 times higher than the Han Chinese in the Xinjiang region. In fact, both Chinese figures and Zen's agree that the Uyghur population in Xinjiang increased significantly between 2010 all the way up to 2018. Zen's figures show an increase in Uyghur population from 10.1 million to 
8 million, while Chinese government figures demonstrate an even larger increase to 12.7 million. This means that the Uyghur population grew over 25% during this time, while the Han Chinese in this region grew at a much lesser rate due to the one-child policy that was in effect for the Han Chinese, but exempted for all minority populations, including Uyghurs. In order to preserve ethnic diversity, however, ethnic minorities, including the Uyghur people, had always enjoyed preferential population policies. In the four decades between 1978 and 2018, for example, the Uyghur population in Xinjiang doubled from 5.6 million to 11.7 million. If China truly had the intent, remember, intent must be shown to prove genocide. For completing subsection D to prove genocide, why in the world would they exempt Uyghurs? Hell, it's the perfect cover-up and excuse. There's too many people. Nope, the CPC allowed allowed Uyghur populations not only to dramatically increase, but economically thrive. But they, those statistics are manipulated by the Chinese government. If that's the case, then why did Adrian Zenz base his entire study on these statistics then? It's either you rely on the study that relies on these statistics, or you have to throw everything that he's made out of the picture because they are based on faulty information. Either way, Adrian Zenz is completely manipulating these claims. This is from both a Gray Zone article and primary statistics showing the population growth. According to the Chinese governmental statistics, because if they're good for Adrian Zenz, they're good for us. Maternal and infant morality rates in Xinjiang were nearly halved by 2018, while average life expectancy rose as a result of increased public health investments. Independent studies also back these claims as well and call it, quote, a remarkable success story. Zenz omitted this good news from his study, however. But what about the IUDs and, quote, forcible sterilization programs? Among Zen's major findings was a claim that 80% of all net IUD placements in China were performed in Xinjiang, despite the fact that the region only makes up 1.8% of the nation's population. According to the 2019 China Health Statistic Yearbook, published by the National Health Commission, the original source of Zen's claim, the number of new IUD insertion procedures in Xinjiang in 2018 only accounted for 8.7% of China's total. So Zen's major finding appears to be way off by a factor of 10, a staggering error that really does undermine the explosiveness of his argument. Along with this miscalculation, Zen's claimed that the Chinese government inserted between 800 and 1400 IUDs per capita each year in Xinjiang, which meant that each woman in the province would have to undergone anywhere from four to eight IUD surgeries every day. There are so many other flaws in this recent study, it is just easier to link this Grey Zone article exposing it all, again, using primary sources.
Despite all these gaps in the studies, they were literally quoted by former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo and the current Secretary of State Anthony Blinken to support their last-minute accusation of genocide against the Muslim Uyghur population in Xinjiang. Even supposed Western leftist YouTubers like Bad Empanada used these statistics to convince themselves that there is a genocide, calling out others to be genocide deniers by brushing out these phony studies by Adrian Zenz to be quote from the CIA. By the way, this goes a lot deeper than Adrian Zenz. We clearly see, despite using Chinese governmental statistics, Adrian Zenz does not show the full picture and outright lies about the IUDs and birth control programs for women as forced sterilizations. If we are on the topic of genocide, why don't we actually look at the United States records for sterilizing millions of black and brown women in prisons and immigration camps? I mean, the intent is obviously racially motivated and discriminatory, and it really does meet subsection D and the mental element of genocide here. Hell, at least start an investigation into this, just saying. Another infamous study that that Adrian Zenz published, besides these false sterilizations and million Uyghur prisoner claims, was the Karakax List, where they leaked a governmental document showing 311, quote, prisoners that were detained by the government. However, it was soon revealed that these people are actually living normal lives, as one of the people said on this supposed list was, quote, used to deceive others. <laughs> Every single one of this man's studies has the same faults, falsehoods, and manipulations. But Adrian Zenz is just the tip of the iceberg to this incredible academic facade for studies on Xinjiang. Roshan Abbas, founder and executive director of the nonprofit Campaign for Uyghurs, was a U.S. Department of Defense translators for interrogators at the Guantanamo Bay Detention Center. She literally helped the West tortured Muslims while claiming she's against the torturing of Muslims. She is a literal walking projection of the United States. Additionally, an article from the Global Times stated that she, quote, first stole some Uyghur's photos and information, claimed these people to be missing relatives in Xinjiang, spread rumors on overseas media, and that some non-governmental organizations, especially the Human Rights Watch, are promoting these rumors. By the way, this campaign of missing people has been a goldmine for investigative journalists as they have been finding these seemingly random missing people all over Xinjiang, some who do not even know Western social media and these campaigns are using their image for their profits. Online, they're labeled as missing, but in reality, they live a normal life. Our retirement life has been quite good. We live with our son for the most part as our grandson is still little. The couple have three children, all study medicine. Their oldest son, Yasup, who lives with them in this apartment, now works in the People's Hospital of Kuka. Two daughters, however, have not been in contact since 2017. My sisters and I all studied at the medical school in Xinjiang, but then my two sisters went abroad. My older sister, Mahai, went to Turkey and gave birth to her child. That was the last time she contacted us. 
It turns out the older daughter, Mahir, has been doing something her family couldn't quite understand. On December 9th, she posted her parents' photos on Twitter, saying they were missing, along with other Uyghurs. She claimed her parents were oppressed by the Chinese government and banned from contacting her. I showed Niyaz and his wife what their daughter had posted. Silence at first. And then came the tears. I'm very upset. She used to be an honest girl. I don't know why she would make up such stories about us. We live very well. If she really cares about us or misses us, we ask her, please just contact us. In the last couple of weeks, there has been an online campaign circulating on Western social media to find missing Uyghurs in China. On our first day here, we tracked down one allegedly missing woman, 23-year-old Holly Noor. She's now working in this restaurant. Holly Noor says she was shocked when she first heard the news a week ago. Her cousin's husband, Abdullah Rasul, was the one who posted about her and the alleged disappearance of a few other family members. These so-called Uyghur activists are all something else and should not be taken seriously. Let's see who else. I touched on Sophie Richardson from the Human Rights Watch from our last video. Also, this woman Sophie, there was a recent AMA on Reddit that completely debunked all her nonsense. She couldn't answer where she got her funding from, how she can communicate all these quote-unquote facts from China, or even if she can speak any Mandarin. She's the human rights director of China, for Christ's sakes. By the way, what is with all these white people that can't even speak any Mandarin coming out as experts on China? Daniel Dumbbell and Carl Zaw both did an excellent takedown on Arsalan Hidea, a quote Uyghur activist who is also known for putting up fake content on Uyghur oppression, but is still getting attention from primetime TV slots as being an expert on Xinjiang. By the way, what I don't understand is Twitter and other social media are seriously cracking down on fake content and using their policies to target such people as Max Blumenthal and other journalists that fight against Western propaganda like this. But Arsalan can literally put fake content out there and admit that it's fake and still have his Twitter up along with the fact that he's made some serious threats to Chinese heads of states and CPC members and their families. I ask Allah um, to destroy the Communist Party of China. I ask Allah to destroy Xi Jinping and his family. Now, with all that said, let's dive into think tanks. The National Endowment of Democracy, or NED, or NED, is a State Department affiliate for funding colored revolutions around the world and has been funding Uyghur groups in Xinjiang since 2004, as they proudly mention it here. NED has funded many Uyghur separatist campaigns like the World Uyghur Congress and Uyghur Human Rights Project, spending over $27 million since 2016. The Australian Strategic Policy Institute, or ASPI, and the Washington DC-based Center for Strategic International Studies are the main institution responsible for the Uyghur studies in Xinjiang, and they both have heavily relied on Adrian Zen's faulty methodologies 
if you can even call them that. Additionally, these institutes are heavily funded by military companies like Raytheon, Lockheed Martin, Boeing, and many countries' own defense departments from the United Kingdom all the way to Japan. According to Australia's own Senator Kim Carr, ASBI has received nearly half a million dollars from the United States State Department alone between 2019 to 2020. ASBI in particular is headed by an anti-communist militarist Peter Jennings, a former Australian Department of Defense official. ASBI's head researcher defended the right-wing Falun Gong cult that pushes false organ harvesting narratives to where even two U.S. ambassadors stated that there was no such acts happening in China in a 2006 congressional report. Even more hypocritically disgusting is the fact that ASBI receives millions of dollars in funding from corporations that directly profit from forced prison labor. APAC, a Sydney-based news outlet, reports that on October 12th that at least 11 financial backers of ASBI have either directly or indirectly been involved in prisons and the use of prison labors and or implicated in human trafficking. Among them, four major long-term financial backers, BAE Systems, Lockheed Martin, Boeing, and Raytheon, have relied on prison labor to build components used in their military hardware. If you want to look up more on the think tank industry, look at this Gray Zone article here for more information. Most other think tanks have these sorts of ties and are right-wing leaning with the facade of being non-partisan or academic, but they are receiving funding by military institutions or staffed with military officials. They continue to rinse and repeat this cycle of faulty studies, biased researchers, and blood money. With both leading Westbrook experts on Xinjiang and think tank publications now exposed as right-wing organizations that are heavily funded and influenced by the Western military industrial complex, along with other extremely dirty ties to promote a second Cold War with China, I hope viewers are starting to feel like this is orchestrated by the government to promote a narrative against a state enemy. Zen's attempted to pad his shaky statistics with dramatic tests testimony from U.S.-based Uyghur exiles who have been cultivated by the State Department. The narratives of these exiles have been extremely challenged by family members in Xinjiang as well as vocational center graduates and officials who have produced documents purporting to disprove all of their allegations. Speaking about shaky and dramatic testimony, let's move on to the witnesses. Coming to the hospital with guns. They took the babies out of the incubators. took the incubators and left the children to die on the cold floor. That was horrifying. I could not help but think of my nephew, who if born premature might have died that day as well. After I left the hospital, some of my friends and I distributed flyers condemning the Iraqi invasion until we were warned we might be killed if the Iraqi saw us. The Iraqi saw us. Remember her? Her name is Nirath Ah-Sabah, and at that time she was a 15-year-old girl from Kuwait who testified to Congress in 1992. She said that Iraq soldiers invaded the hospitals and threw premature babies out of incubators on the floor to die, along with torturing her friend with electrocution and drowning. It was later revealed that her entire 
testimony was false. She was the daughter of a Kuwaiti ambassador to the United States. Her speech was coached by an American PR firm and her testimony was organized by a quote activist campaign named Citizens for a Free Kuwait. Yet her testimony was used over and over again to justify the invasion of Iraq. Does this strategy of using sympathetic witnesses like this young woman sound familiar? What about Colin Powell's testimony that justified the United States unilateral action to invade Iraq for weapons of mass destruction? With that said, let's compare these testimonies to the following. Mihigul Tursan testified to Congress that she was tortured in a Uyghur concentration camp and that the Chinese government killed her newborn son in the hospital. Horrible stuff, but hmm, newborn baby, hospital, investigations reveal that her testimony was actually fabricated. Joyce words from the mother of Mihigu Tursan, a Uyghur woman who said on CNN that one of her three children died in a Wurumuchi hospital. During the interview, Tursan said she was separated from her triplets at the Wurumuchi airport and held in custody. After her release, she said she was told that her son died following an operation. This is Rumuchi Children's Hospital, where Mihigu Tursun claims one of her triplets died, a claim that a hospital adamantly denies. Dr. Li Xuexiong has worked at Rumuchi Children's Hospital for 30 years. He says records show only Mihigu's son named Moez received the treatment at the hospital between January and November of 2016, twice for pneumonia and once for a hernia. Moaz's respiration system was infected, so we decided not to give him surgery. After we cured him, Marie Gould's mother took Moaz out of the hospital on November 8, 2016. The woman next to her, Sarah Gould Sanbei, also testified that she was tortured in a camp, but it was all a lie, at least according to her sister, as her story is incredibly inconsistent. Probably the most prominent witness has been Tasarei Zawure. However, keeping in mind those allegations, a year ago, in an interview with BuzzFeed, she said, quote, I was not beaten or abused, end quote. The U.S. media pointed out that before arriving in the United States, she had multiple interviews with foreign media outlets and institutions. However, she did not once mention these so-called sexual abuses in vocational education and training centers in Xinjiang, or that she was a victim of such abuses. All of this was actually a quoted statement from a Chinese spokesperson here. Alright, let's see here. Um, there's this Uyghur model who recorded himself being handcuffed to a bed, but it was later found out that he was actually trafficking drugs and finished completing his sentence and was being returned home. Interesting tidbit, according to Article 37 of the Prison Law of the People's Republic of China, a person released after serving his sentence shall be sent back to their place of their registered residency and the local government shall assist the individual to resettle. Wish we had that here. However, when they were assisting him to be resettled, he hurt himself and acted violently against these officials but was released after settling down. There's this man, Aziz Elkan, who claimed that the Chinese government were demolishing graves and his father's remains were lost because of the destruction, but investigators found his family and his own mother called out his own lie. After a few exchanges, they took us to the place where Aziz's father, Isa Abdullah, is now buried.
Aziz's 78-year-old mother told us, her husband Isa died from a heart attack back in November 2017. According to CNN, Aziz knows exactly where his father's tomb is, but due to his status, he couldn't come back or even phone his mother. But during our interview with his mom, she painted a totally different picture. There's a bunch of these debunking videos and resources that call into question so many of these stories from the United States witnesses. And there's actually a handy chart calling out their most prominent witnesses right here. Along with that, there are women that are reporting the opposite from these women testifying in Congress. Oh, but the press gets more malicious than this. Like Radio Free Asia targeting Uyghur parents who lost their child in a drowning accident. But what's adding insult to injury is a video of their boy's death that's going viral. As Radio Free Asia reports, the tragedy occurred because the parents are incarcerated for religious and political reasons. But I hope you all are starting to see a pattern of inconsistencies, manipulations, and straight-up lies when it comes to these witnesses. Am I saying every single witness here is a liar? Not necessarily, but I think that's the incorrect approach for these witnesses, especially if they are promoting a Western narrative. I mentioned in my first video that witness testimony is incredibly flimsy when they have been shown to have several inconsistencies. North Korean defectors are a fantastic example of a group of people that the West uses as a microphone to not only get them fame, money, and prominence, but also threaten their own family and survival with devastating consequences. But recently there was a video of a North Korean defector actually returning to the DPRK and saying that they forced her to lie to entice her with lucrative employment. But they, the government is forcing her to say that in order to return home and live peaceably and for her to stay in the DPRK for her family, even though she returned there in the first place and could have stayed in South Korea. Oh. Yep, along with their lies about Iraq and plenty of other wars, this tactic is incredibly apparent and should be considered a factor when listening to these testimonies. We have to remember that we are dealing with a horrendously bad actor here the United States, that uses these witnesses for their own gain, no matter how inconsistent their testimonies are, and being shown later, they outright lie. And they can supplement their testimonies with Adrian Zen's studies to bolster them up as well. But let's take this a step further, where there are several YouTube channels that show people going to Xinjiang and showing how people are living normal lives, like this channel right here. Let's take this into a further step, and how in the beginning of the video, where we had a bunch of people not being interviewed by any governmental officials or news reporter, freely denounced these witnesses as liars and denounced these campaigns on their homeland and their government. They have absolutely no reason to do this other than to speak their minds. Do their voices count as much as these witnesses who have tremendously inconsistent testimonies? 
we actually spoke to one of these hosts of these channels to provide more details to these testimonies and why they would do such a thing. I'm one of the members of the YouTube channel Real Xinjiang. All of the content from this channel comes from Chinese social media, content about Xinjiang from various groups and individuals. We are honored to have Bay Area 415 invite us to share our motivation in creating this channel. We are just a few people from all over the world who joined to create this channel, but we all have one goal, which was to give people a window into China. For the West, where anti-China information is everywhere, we understand that when Western media reports about China, there is a bias that lets many people have misunderstandings about her. We have had enough of this misunderstanding and the baseless accusations of the West. This made us have the idea to clear up the misconceptions and accusations from the West through the web. We also hope that more people can join us in showing the real China to the world and creating more channels like this. You know, as an attorney in court, a witness who has inconsistent testimony is like serving a lion a ribeye steak. Or, for my vegan comrades, serving a giraffe acacia leaves. But in all seriousness, there is a process for impeaching witnesses for prior inconsistent statements, where omitting key facts or staying silent on critical facts are considered to be prior inconsistent statements. Attorneys are allowed to bring outside evidence to challenge a witness's statements to help determine their credibility. Witnesses that change their stories like this ought to be verified by the very same journalist that interviewed them. Whenever there is a claim for such inconsistency, why doesn't the press actually follow up on their claims or look into these studies by Adrian Zenz a bit deeper? This will stop this lie once and for all and maybe continue some peaceful development alongside- Oh, they're bought out by the military-industrial complex as well. Great. Integrity in Western journalism is now a hollow phase, bought out to the highest bidder. Those bidders are investing in the media to buy your opinions to support their wars. Am I going too far with this? I don't think so. How long were you with the CIA? 13 years. I was a field case officer. Disseminate propaganda to influence people's minds. And this is a major function of the CIA. And uh, unfortunately, of course, it overlaps into the gathering of information. You, you have contact with a journalist. You will give him true stories, you will get information from him, you will also give him false stories. Did you buy his confidence with true stories? You buy his confidence and set him up. We've seen this happen in, uh, recently with Jack Anderson, for example, who, who has his intelligence sources, and he has also admitted that he's been set up by them. And every fifth story just simply being false. Uh, you also work on their human vulnerabilities to recruit them in a classic sense, to make them your agent so that you can control what they do, so you don't have to set them up sort of, you know, by, by putting one over on them, so you can say, here, plant this one next Tuesday. Can you do this with responsible reporters? Yes, the Church Committee brought it out in 1975, and then Woodward and Bernstein put an article in Rolling Stone a couple of years later. Uh, 400 journalists cooperating with the CIA, uh, including some of the biggest names in the business, to consciously introduce the stories into the press. Well, give me a concrete example of how you use the press this way, how a false story is planted and how you've got it published. Well, for example, in my, my war, the Angola war that I helped to manage, uh, one third of my staff was propaganda. Ironically, it's called covert action inside the CIA. Outside, that means the violent part. Uh, I had propagandists all over the world, principally in London, Kinshasa, and Zambia. We would, we would take stories which we would write and put them in the Zambia Times, and then pull them out and send them to a, a journalist on our payroll in Europe. But his cover story, you see, would be that he would, he'd gotten from his stringer in Lusaka, who had gotten them from the Zambia Times. 
we have the complicity of the government of Zambia, Kenneth Kaunda, if you will, to put these false stories into his newspapers. But after that point, the journalists, uh, Reuters and AFP, uh, the management was not witting of it. Now, our contact man in Europe was, and we pumped just, just dozens of stories about Cuban atrocities, Cuban rapists. Uh, in one case, we had the Cuban rapists caught uh, and tried by the Ovimbundu maidens who had been their victims, and then we ran photographs that made almost every newspaper in the country of the Cubans being executed by the Ovimbundu women who supposedly had been their victims. These were fake photos? Oh, absolutely. We didn't know of one single atrocity committed by the Cubans. It was pure, raw, false propaganda to, to create a, an illusion of communists, you know, eating babies for breakfast, and that's a totally false propaganda. Oh, come on. That was decades ago, right? Military and industrial agencies for Western states are not buying out the media like before, right? Well, here are some leaked documents from the UK Foreign and Commonwealth Office using Rutgers and the BBC as counter disinformation and media development personas to train journalists in Syria and Russia, quote, attitudinal change to weaken these countries. That's Russia and Syria. That's not happening in China, right? Well... speaker is Colonel Lawrence Wilkerson. Colonel Wilkerson is on the board of the Ron Paul Institute. He was a speaker on Capitol Hill for Dr. Paul, as you'll see in the introduction. And he is also, was also the Chief of Staff for Secretary, then Secretary of State Colin Powell was in the midst of the run-up to the Iraq war. He was there, he's seen the disaster. And stabilize it if necessary. And the third reason we're there is because they're 20 million Uyghurs and they don't like Han Chinese and Xinjiang province of Western China. And if the CIA has to mount an operation using those Uyghurs as Erdogan has done in Turkey against Assad, there are 20,000 of them in Idlib, in Idlib in Syria right now, for example. That's why the Chinese might be deploying military forces to Syria in the very near future to take care of those Uyghurs that Erdogan invited in. Well, the CIA would want to destabilize China, and that would be the best way to do it, to foment unrest and to join with those Uyghurs in pushing the Han Chinese and Beijing from internal places rather than external. Not saying it's going on right now, you didn't hear that, but it is a possibility. So that's why we're there, and I'll wager there are not a handful of Americans who realize that we, our military, has decided that for these strategic reasons, which are well thought out, we're gonna be in Afghanistan Even places like Democracy Now!, a show that was supposedly a leftist space for news media, friend of the show Danny Hyphen reported that 76% of its coverage on China has been negative. But how do they prop up the illusion of integrity without having any? May I present to you the term Western Propaganda Cycle, or WPC. You see, unlike other news sources like The Grey Zone or CGTN, Western media hardly uses any primary sources when making a statement. Rather, I would say 60 to 90% of their sources on Xinjiang come from other news outlets or faulty studies. For instance, when I went back and watched John Oliver's Uyghur video and counted how many sources he used, I split them up into three areas. First, those that come from other Western media outlets. Two, those that come from primary sources, and three, those that have a mix of both. Of the 32 sources he cited in this 20-minute video, 88% of them came from other Western media outlets or studies from biased organizations. That's right, only four sources of these 32 sources came from primary sources, and even then, I was being a bit generous because there was a BBC World News report on a witness that was, quote, in a labor camp. 
technically it's a witness and unverified at that, so it's a primary source, but it's also the BBC reporting, which also goes into the WPC pile. In all honesty, there were only really two primary sources out of that entire report, and they were still manipulated to omit facts. But John Oliver is not the only Western media outlet that cycles other outlets as facts. Just look at any other article on Xinjiang and the quote, Uyghur genocide, and just count how many times this article cites to this article, this article cites to the Washington Post, New York Times, Adrian Zenz, ASPI, Human Rights Watch, etc. And compare them to actual primary sources to see how their integrity crumbles. Make it a drinking game if you want. Pick five western articles that talk about the quote Uyghur genocide and every time you see a WPC cited take a shot. I bet you you will barely pass three articles but do that with Grayzone, Pelazuar, or CGTN you're lucky if you get a nice buzz. Oh, but it doesn't even stop there, folks. Western media uses video and hidden tactics to feel like their reports had to be in secret or China is a truly dystopian country. In a far corner of northwestern China, a car drives along a wall lined with barbed wire. A video report the New York Times made in Kuwaituan, Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region, paints a bleak picture of how Uyghurs live and work. Times claims Uyghur workers were forced to leave their hometowns in southern Xinjiang and made to work here. The Times decided to do its filming secretly, even though Kuwaitan sanitation station is open to the media. It's all about making it look like there's some sort of big conspiracy going on. They use, uh, quote, uh, secret footage and things like this. You know, putting things in, taking things out, the hush voice, this type of thing. I mean, they're, they're speaking on, <laughs> on a videotape. Uh, but it's very conspiratorial. It's made for drama. Sneaking in cameras when they don't have to, wrong interpretations of Chinese to make things much worse than they seem, or outright mistranslating them? Hell, it was revealed that the BBC actually used a yellow filter or a dim filter to make China less appealing for Western audiences. So it is no wonder that China banned the BBC world because of its trickery and continuous slander. If you want to see more of this Western manipulation detail with the BBC's most infamous quote tour of these vocational schools, I recommend checking out this article from Song Fayang here, breaking down each moment regarding their visit and how they were able to twist their words and make it sound more horrific than what's actually happening. <sighs> Western media is the institution that sold us the Iraq war. These are the people that ran smears during the Cold War. These are the people that pretend to tell the truth, when in reality, they are not. The accountability in Western media is now gone, and capitalism and the military-industrial complex is to blame. We need to dig deeper to understand the true reason why the United States is just so interested in making China out to be the enemy. We showed this clip before using a top U.S. Army chief back in 2018 and their plans and attempts to balkanize and break Xinjiang 
from China for the United States' own gain. We must understand it's more than China's communism, growing economy, or non-Western culture, although these are huge factors that threaten Western hegemony. But the biggest influencer here is capitalism. Over $600 billion in US government spending, bigger than all the other military budgets around the world combined after a trillion more being spent for needless wars. China is the perfect target to continue that. I talked about the military industrial complex influence in making China its target here in this video. Oh, but it goes so much deeper than this. You know what has capitalists licking their chops specifically at Xinjiang? This is an excerpt from Operation White O, the unholy alliance between the Vatican, the CIA, and the Mafia, saying they have oil reserves just as big as in Saudi Arabia. But there's so much more than fossil fuels and mining here. This news clip shows Xinjiang provides a way for China to cut through Singaporean ports controlled by the USA by building their own corridors and ports with Pakistan, cutting out the West entirely. Now, before I get into this bombshell, I want to give a preface. We here at the Comrade Report are not into speculations and conspiracies. We acknowledge that this may or may not be true, but given the United States track record, this person's credentials, and other sources backing their claims, we want to present it out to everyone to, at least, paint some doubt into the United States' attention in Xinjiang and their long-term strategies to destabilize the region for China. From FBI whistleblower Sibel Emans, she says, quote, Between 1996 and 2002, the United States planned, financed, and helped execute every single uprising and terror-related scheme in Xinjiang, aka East Turkestan, and Uyghurstan. She also said, quote, things that have happened in Xinjiang have the USA fingerprints all over it. Following these accusations, the US Attorney General imposed a state of secret privilege order on her, which prevents her from revealing more information about these subjects. Another quote from the book reveals US involvement in Xinjiang. Throughout the 1990s, hundreds of Uyghurs were transported to Afghanistan by the CIA for training in guerrilla warfare by the Muhadin. When they returned to Xinjiang, they formed the Eastern Turkish Islamic Movement. One more quote from CIA agent Graham Fuller, explaining the need to radicalize Chinese Muslims. The policy of guiding the evolution of Islam and helping Muslims against our adversaries worked marvelously well in Afghanistan against the Red Army. The same doctrine can still be used to destabilize what remains of Russian power and especially to counter Chinese influence in Central Asia. They are using terrorists to counter Chinese influence like they did in Afghanistan and the Soviet Union. <laughs> I just... <laughs> The EMIT are used as pawns to benefit the USA at the cost of thousands of innocent lives. I was real eager to go down this rabbit hole, and I found many articles back in the year 2000 that continued to highlight this. So far from these sources, it is just unbelievable 
to find this. And if anybody wants to dive deeper to confirm all this, please do. We all know that the CIA has helped fund Tibetan rebels against the CPC, and this may not be as far-fetched as that, but I know I can spend another hour attempting to connect the dots here, and unfortunately we did not have enough time or bandwidth to do so. But I really, really hope this opens the door for some of you all to expose this shadiness of the United States and show what they are capable of. With this being a large possibility for all the destabilization and claims of genocide in Xinjiang, capitalists are losing the most populous country in the world day by day, and Western capitalism is getting more desperate, with military hawks drumming the drums for war. With everything that I just said, I really hope this paints a picture of doubt with these horrible crimes against humanity accusations. The United States has an obvious interest to push these false narratives. In this section, I'm just going to spend a minute or a lightning round if you can say with these points that continue to peddle this propaganda that also pile onto this twisted narrative to line military companies' pockets. Let's start off with the aerial photos from these quote camps. This is probably the best way to debunk propaganda by straight up checking these locations and using a little bit of logic. The US Agency for Global Media, a congressionally funded agency of the government, in conjunction with BuzzFeed, again, military and media lining up their interests to push their agenda, published satellite images of Uyghur concentration camps and prisons, only to be debunked by Twitter users and other investigators who showed they are actually five-star apartments, open fields, and elementary schools. There are other publications like these from ASVI, that other right-wing think tank funded by military departments and companies around the world. An ASPI report promulgated by Western Media claims that there are over 380 detention centers to imprison workers in Xinjiang. But when you closely study ASPI's Xinjiang report, you find that its data, analysis, and conclusions are plain wrong. Tracing some quantities in the ASPI research, we find ourselves in front of Houghton Detention Center. Since its completion in 2012, Houghton Detention Center has never been used for vocational education and training. Of course, the detention center is very different from a vocational education and training center. The detention center is for detaining criminals, people who violated the criminal law. Do you know if any Uyghurs are detained here? People in the detention center have nothing to do with the ethnic group. No matter who violates the law, he will be punished. It has nothing to do with whichever ethnic group. Walls and CCTVs are typical of a detention center. This is simply a detention center. Not unlike thousands of such panel institutions you can find anywhere in the world. But ASPI chooses to call it a camp. It's a rebranding exercise straight from the manual of Western media tricks. Just pointing to some of the building and say, oh, that's a detention camp. Oh, that's where the children are sent and beaten every day. This is nonsense. It, it, it's, it, it really demeans uh, the whole you know, professionalism of journalism. On other sites, we find even more problematic conclusions. ASPI seems to love fighting walls and towers in cities. So if a school, for example, has any of these fixtures, it's almost certain to go on the SPS blacklist of detention centers. We geolocate Maro Bashi number 3 primary school through SPS map, and this is what we find. 
Alrighty, next we have this video from Radio Free Asia. Side note, if anybody references Radio Free Asia, simply ask if they know where they get their funding. They are literally a US government funded nonprofit through the same agency that worked with BuzzFeed on those satellite images. I kid you not, they have on their page that they operate under a congressional mandate, and it is codified under US Code 22 Section 6208. They receive an annual grant from the United States and dictates that if RFA ever becomes ineffective in its own mission, that this grant will go somewhere else. And the draft of this act is even more disgusting on how it slaps the face of any sovereign nation on how they attempt to undermine its rule of law and sabotage the country. Truly disgusting and someone should really look into the roots of the RFA. I sincerely think it's going to be another goldmine of corruption and illegality. Anyways, as out of context and disgusting their content is, they are cited as a source in this video where a woman is crying at a wedding and the description of this video state that this is a forced marriage with another line saying quote after locking up all the Uyghur males in concentration camps China is forcing Uyghur women to marry Chinese men I question the authenticity of this video obviously on what's going on and I posted this in a great online community for China on Reddit called r slash Sino. They were able to uncover a great study titled quote gender roles as seen through wedding rituals in a rural Rigor community published by Cyprus International University where it says quote during the whole marriage ceremony the bride is expected to be shy and look upset or pretend to be upset if she cries and is upset it means that she loves her parents and family and she does not want to leave them one would think that the bride feels ashamed and frightened but her crying is expected behavior it symbolizes the fact that she has left her father's home and moved in with her husband's family. In other words, crying is not an expression of personal feelings, but is instead part of the rituals. But what do folks do at RFA? They just slap this as a forced wedding and carry on. Again, manipulation at its finest to earn their millions from the United States government. Again, I mentioned in my John Oliver video how these translations have some funny grammar. There was a recent thread on Quora from a person that looked at all these 400 pages from the New York Times that were available and translated them here. And shocking reveal, nothing showing genocide. As this translator Jamin Chen puts it, quote, I would say these papers definitely provide an inside look into how the authorities deal with the side effects of their policies in Xinjiang, i.e. friends and families of those undergoing re-education, but was exposed don't strike me as being outright atrocious. I was expecting first-hand evidence of what the people in the West are repeating 
ad nauseum that over a million people are being locked up in these camps and these camps are not schools but legit concentration camps and horrible things are going on in these camps e.g. sterilization, torture, etc. None of that is confirmed in these papers made available. All I got out of these papers is that the vocational training schools do indeed exist. Nobody, including the Chinese government, has denied this and that the government is trying to tell those affected by the camps that they are not trying to do anyone any harm, at least in the long run. The translator also notes how the New York Times uses the worst meaning of the words like dictatorship to mean an oppressive government than the Marxist use of the People's Democratic Dictatorship to suppress terrorism in Xinjiang. Terrorism, not Islam. Again, I spoke about this in my previous video, but the BBC just comes out with another allegation that they are forcing Uyghurs to work and now using a Chinese news media on these efforts for employment and poverty alleviation that is, again, very, very spotty. I just, they're really trying to push this forced labor narrative to just cripple the economy of this region when they're trying to lift this region out of poverty. But it's just not working. I also wanted to provide an additional supplement since this week they published a 55-page study titled The Uyghur Genocide, an examination of China's breaches of the 1984 Genocide Convention. This study is from the Newsline Institute for Strategic and Policy Think Tank from Fairfax University of America. I never heard of this university, and this tweet from the war nerd exposes them as to only have 153 students, as threatened to have their license revoked for grade inflation, and several deficiencies of academic rigor. As he said, quote, a fake university think tank funded by a fake university, which is certified by a fake accreditation scam. And they are supposedly legit enough to publish this bombshell of a paper to prove genocide under the UN definition. They literally cite to Radio Free Asia 22 times, Adrian Zen's work 39 times, Human Rights Watch 9 times, New York Times 12 times, BBC 12 times, Washington Post, Rutgers, and all these points basically to simply surmise all their studies that they had over the years to prove genocide. It is the same misleading arguments regurgitated. They falsely present China's anti-terrorist activities in the region as prejudice against a single community, claims that China family planning policies are an attempt to exterminate local population, and take Xi Jinping's speech way out of context to mean eradicating Uyghurs instead of terrorism. Do not believe a word from it. Again, I think I addressed this pretty thoroughly in my first video when John Oliver accused Han Chinese of some sort of Han supremacy here. But if we're talking about race supremacy here, there is a huge uptick in anti-Asian hate crimes due to white Western supremacy that has infected the people in the United States, and it is well documented throughout history on how these sorts of narratives that the United States and Western media promotes affect minorities horrendously and tragically and sometimes even deadly. China celebrates Uyghur culture quite prominently, and we do not see the demeaning or belittling of their culture anywhere.
In fact, there are tons of celebrities with Uyghur identities that are thriving in China. Coupled with my video, this supremacy argument does not really make sense. But this is a great segue into showing what China is really doing in Xinjiang and how it's defending itself against these vicious attacks. This is the Xinjiang the Western media doesn't want you to know. Xinjiang is experiencing an economic boom never before seen. With 7.2 GDP growth, all regions and prefectures connected by expressways, 9.1 increased per capita disposable income growth rate, 90-90.7% covered by basic medical insurance, and 3 million lifted out of poverty. It's provided security from terrorism and thriving cultural and economic stability with celebrating the culture through media, education, and art. This is a video of a cadre in Xinjiang that helped Uyghurs for over four years in poverty alleviation. After finishing, the village wheat for his services. This is what China is doing in Xinjiang. Good works. People from all over the world posted up pictures of signs that are in their native language, videos of Islamic readings from the Quran over governmental microphones, and religious sites after religious site. Jerry the Biker, an Australian man who biked through Xinjiang for many years, was kind enough to send us some pictures of his trip and has testified in interviews about what he saw, none of which indicated genocide. Additionally, this is a great thread from Dr. and Professor Astar Bear on how the Uyghur language is an official language recognized in China and how there is no erasing of their culture. Moreover, China has constantly invited members of the international community to visit Xinjiang, including the United States and European Union, and both of them have declined their invitations. China says it has invited representatives from EU countries to visit Xinjiang to understand the real situation there, but they have repeatedly delayed going. A Chinese Foreign Ministry spokesperson said this has shown their high-handedness and prejudice. They gave the impression that if we don't do as they tell us, they're not interested in visiting Xinjiang. This is clearly a provocative act in disregard of Chinese law and interference in China's judicial sovereignty. Xinjiang's door is open, and China's invitation and our sincerity remain unchanged. However, the visit should not be an investigative mission based on presumption of guilt. However, more than 1,200 representatives from over 100 countries have visited, many of which signed official declarations supporting China's efforts in Xinjiang, and most of them said there is no evidence of genocide as well. The UN voted twice to call China's treatment of the Uyghurs a genocide, and they failed both times. Most of the countries supporting China's efforts in Xinjiang are majority Muslim countries as well. Now, some may dismiss this claim as they are just attempting to get on China's good side. They want to benefit from the Belt and Road Initiative, despite having some countries that are participating in the Belt and Road Initiatives stay neutral or even vote against them. But it is obvious that this is a Western narrative that has only convinced the West and not much anywhere else. 
Okay, uh, it's been over an hour. With the evidence compiled and the motivations why the United States is transfixed on China, we are witnessing the most sophisticated propaganda war against China. I have used many sources and media outlets that have used primary sources to demonstrate that there is no genocide that fits the UN definition. I have spoken for over an hour on the historical significance of Xinjiang and China, the horrible manipulations of Adrian Zen's Uyghur campaigns and think tanks funded by the military-industrial complex, Western propaganda cycles in the media, inconsistent witness testimony, the real reason why and how the US caused so much chaos in Xinjiang, and miscellaneous tidbit of refuting evidence of this supposed genocide on top of the fact that China is making Xinjiang the most prosperous region with an increasingly happy population. To Western leftists, watching, please look at the facts and material realities. If you do not think that this is some grand manufacturing consent with everything I presented here on top of the United States record, I really have no idea what other sources I can cite to you to convince you otherwise. But please do not stand with these folks that are targeting a country simply because you think the government is authoritarian or the situation is nuanced. Please remember what happened to the people after the fall of the Soviet Union and how much trauma that collapsed has caused. Do not wish that consequence upon China but rather a strong nation that continue its prosperities with all ethnicities united and can actually promote and continue peaceful development. Over 90% of the people support the CPC and their government. We all should support their government as well. I have to say that being put in this position to, quote, deny a genocide is revolting. We have witnessed the horrors of the Holocaust Native American genocide, Rwanda, etc. But the Western manipulative sophistication of setting up China like this should offend every single community that finds genocide revolting. We do not need to believe such lies anymore. We can work together to build a more peaceful world with China. We can promote, celebrate, and embrace all minority cultures and stop this warpath from the West. But it's up to you, the people, to see the truth. Don't be blinded by prejudices, propaganda, or ideology. But if you really want to look at a country that displaces minorities, kills them in mass, sterilizes women without their permission, systematically mistreats people on the basis of race, ethnicities, nationalities, or religion, attacks places of worship, separates children from families, tortured members of religious sects, all with the intent to destroy in whole or in part a national, ethnical, racial, or religious group, you do not need to look any further than the crimes of the West. You know, I say there's a reason why I have to wear this mask. I cannot imagine anybody showing their face in my position and being in my job for long if they receive threats from others. Hell, people calling me genocide denier alone will probably get me a call to HR, as they do with so many others questioning this Western narrative on social media. But it's because of not only my platform and my persona, 
but my expertise as an attorney to break this down all for you is why I do it. Don't get me wrong, if I lose my job, my home, or become alienated from friends and family, that's an expected risk for doing all this, and I accept that. But what I do care about is truth and justice. That's why I am who I am. Along with this, I will open an invitation to any large platform that wishes to debate otherwise. China is not committing genocide. The Uyghur people are prospering under the CPC. And I want to make this video the main debunk video towards anyone claiming otherwise. We can peacefully prosper together with a growing China and work together on a better humanity. Thanks everyone so much for watching. If y'all made it to the end, please like, subscribe, and share the hell out of this video to everyone. Think about becoming a patron if you can, as it really does help us out with this channel, and I really hope you all enjoyed. Solidarity.